family is curious. We've traveled far and wide in search of who, what, when, where, and why. What we've learned, we write about. We are writers. Hello, I'm your host, Sarah Marinus Vandershaff, and I'm a writer and the daughter of Pulitzer Prize winner David Marinus. Welcome to the podcast, Ink in Our Blood, where my father and I explore with you our family's culture, legacy, and experiences as writers. In this first season, we'll take a deeper look at how my dad does it, the way he researches and writes in journalism and his 12 books. And in the final episode, we'll talk about the making of his latest book, A Good American Family, The Red Scare and My Father. If you haven't read or listened to it yet, you can get it at an independent bookstore, Amazon, or my dad's website, davidmarinus.com. So my dad, David Marinus, is an associate editor at the Washington Post, and he's been a professional journalist since the 1970s, and he's the author of 12 books, including his latest, A Good American Family, as well as biographies of presidents and sports figures and books on pivotal points of history, and along the way has won a lot of fancy awards. But I think, Dad, that you are most well-known for writing stories that help us understand who we are. And you write nonfiction in a way that moves us like the best fiction. Dad, you've talked about the idea that there is ink in our blood. And in some ways, writing is this interesting sensibility that is in our blood. And in other ways, it's a craft and a skill that you learn by hard work and by writing and writing and writing. And I think it's like other art forms where you can have a mentor and you can be taught there's a point where you have to integrate the lessons yourself. And that's one reason why I'm excited about this first episode, because we're looking at something that I think is one of only a handful of concrete principles that you could teach another writer. And I think listeners who are avid readers and who appreciate what good writers do and wonder how they do it will also find this episode interesting. And I don't think you typically live by mottos, but this is one. And today we're talking about your motto, which is go there, wherever there is. So let's talk about that. When did you formulate that motto? And when did it become such a concise bedrock to your reporting? Sure. Um, Go there is actually one of what I call the four legs of the table of my nonfiction reporting and writing. It's the first and probably the most important in some ways. The other three legs of the table are get all of the archival documents that I can, interview as many people as I can find, and then uh, the fourth leg is to break through the mythology and find out what's not there or what is not um, normally accepted to be the conventional wisdom of the story and search for the truth. Um, But go there sets everything else up. And it it means to try to understand the geography, the cultural geography, and the sociology of a place and the forces that shape the human beings that I write about. And so in every one of my books, um, going there is the first and most essential part of my project. What I thought might be interesting is to go through some of those books and where going there took you. Um, And I wanted to start with one that I think is a thrilling book. And what's so interesting is that uh, going there meant um, (laughs) uh, doing something that, that some people would think is crazy. So let's start with When Pride Still Mattered, your biography of the great Green Bay Packer coach Vince Lombardi and um, your decision to go to Green Bay in the winter. When did that come to you? Well, as soon as I realized I wanted to write that book, um, which was in 1996, I was covering the second uh, presidential campaign of Bill Clinton. And the day after that election, I turned to Linda, my wife, and uttered the immortal loving words, how would you like to move to Green Bay for the winter? For so many reasons, I realized that I had to be in Green Bay to write this story because the story of Vince Lombardi, um, while he was a New Yorker through and through in many ways, his, his fame came in little Green Bay, Wisconsin. And the most famous game he ever coached was the Ice Bowl, uh, the NFC Championship game in 1967 on New Year's Eve when it was 17 below zero. 
And I understood that to really capture Green Bay, a, a company town where football and the Packers are everything and where it's very cold, um, and that's part of everything that goes on with the Packers, I had to live through that. And so I how would you like to move to Green Bay for the winter? Uh, Linda said, burr. Uh, but we moved up there and it made all of the difference in so many different ways. Being there made that book. So walk us through that, Dad. Um, I know you rented a house. Um, what month did you actually arrive? We arrived um, right after Thanksgiving in 1996. And it turned, you know, what, what I was working at the Washington Post at the time, and I went to the sports editor, George Solomon, and said, I'm going out to Green Bay um, to write a book about Vince Lombardi. The Packers are going to win the Super Bowl this year, so why don't I cover the Packers while I'm out there? Um, he bought it somehow, and of course, that's exactly what happened. But first, I um, tried to find a place for us to live, and we found what what was called a cottage, although it was actually a very uh, nice house, on Green Bay, literally, um, in the forest, um, about 35 miles um, northeast of the city. Um, and it was um, a perfect place for us to, to, to settle because um, it was sort of out of the way, but everybody, as soon as we got there, knew that that uh, the that the uh, biographer of Bill Clinton had moved to Green Bay to write a biography of Vince Lombardi. The word spread from a woman who worked at the bar nearby. Um, so you know, a, a fabulous uh, woman who had been divorced, I think, five times was the town gossip. Um, and she's so. By the second day we were there, the whole town of Brussels, Wisconsin, this little place north of Green Bay, knew that that I was there. And then the um, Green Bay Press Gazette, the newspaper, found out, and they did a story saying Clinton biographer moves to Green Bay to write biography of Vince Lombardi. <laughs> and uh, this was still the era uh, before cell phones when you had answering machines and you'd you know press the button on the answering uh -huh. machine and all of those days messages would come out. And so I would drive down to Green Bay to start doing the reporting of the many people in the city who were either former Packers who still lived there or Lombardi's friends. And I'd come back home and push the answering machine. And there'd be all of these uh, people reporting uh, their understanding of Vince Lombardi from the old days. Um, of course, the first guy that I, you know, when I when I heard um, the answering machine said, I hear you're doing a book about Guy Lombardo. <laughs> Um, not wow. quite, right. uh, but, you know, but then the next uh, 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 message was from a man who had been a caddy at the Oneida Golf and Riding Club and uh, was Lombardi's caddy often. And he described how the coach was, you know, sort of a, a cantankerous uh a uh, golfer who would throw his clubs once in a while, but a very generous tipper, with one exception. If Lombardi lost his golf ball in the woods, uh, he would deduct a dollar from the tip of the caddy if the caddy couldn't find the ball. Uh, another uh, person who called was said he was the, the paper boy on the route that included the Lombardi house on Sunset Circle in Alloway. And um, a suburb of Green Bay, and that he was afraid, deathly afraid. This was a, you know, now a, a man in his fifties or sixties, but when he was a, a young adolescent, he was the paper boy, and he said he was so afraid that if he rang the doorbell to collect, those were still the days when, when you uh, walked the circuit of your paper route to collect uh, the fees, he was afraid that the coach would answer the door and he'd be afraid. For about the first year, it was Marie Lombardi who answered the door and was very nice to him. And then one day, here came the gruff old coach, what do you want? And the, the uh, man said, I was so afraid of him that I ran away and didn't collect my, my you know, the paper fee. Um, another uh, caller said that he was the piano player at Alex's Crown Restaurant in Appleton. And that on Friday nights, 
um, when the Packers were in town, uh, Lombardi and his cronies would drive down from Green Bay to Appleton to eat at, at Alex's Crown Restaurant. And they, when they walked in, the piano player said that he knew he had to play a medley of My Fair Lady. And even though he never wanted um, the guests to sing, he knew that Marie Lombardi would start singing the songs of My Fair Lady. Then they'd retreat to a back room. And again, much like the caddy, um, the, the Lombardi policy was that he was a very generous tipper for the piano player, the waiter, the chef, the servers, the bartender. But he would deduct a dollar from everyone's tip if, in fact, they interrupted Lombardi's meal. So these are very small details that tell you something about the person that I could not have gotten any other way than sort of immersing myself into Green Bay. Um, and, you know, we were there for about a week when Linda said she felt out of uniform and we had to go to Cole's department store and buy her a green and gold sweatshirt. It was such a one company town. We also got earaches after a few weeks in, in that weather. And we drove down to the emergency room in Green Bay and all of the doctors' doors and offices had little Packer uniforms on them with the numbers of either Brett Favre, who was the star quarterback, or Reggie White, the star defensive player. So in every possible way, immersing myself in that place uh, helped me understand what it was like for Vince Lombardi to coach in Green Bay. That is really amazing, Dad. And I'm thinking as you tell those stories about the experience I know I had and maybe some listeners have as a reader of your books. And one of the things that is so mesmerizing is you feel it's almost the cinematic omnipotence that you create as you describe scenes and details. Um, and this is fascinating to hear how each of those details is hard won through reporting and also being there and getting those messages. Did the story in the local paper have your phone number printed? Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, that's how what people started calling me. They printed our phone number at, at this uh, cottage we were staying at, uh, which at first I thought, what? And then I realized uh, it actually was a value. And so I thanked them for doing it. Yeah, I would think that's a little unusual. Um, and so it sounds like they didn't kind of run it by you, but took it upon themselves to um, to sort of note that for their readers. Is yeah. that, yeah. Uh, I can't remember precisely. I mean, I certainly didn't say, please print my phone number. <laughs> right. But, um, you know, it turned out to be the best thing that happened. So what was it like? Uh, I know it's several decades after uh, Lombardi coached, but describe game day in Green Bay. Game day in Green Bay is um, a religion. And, you know, it, it's a, actually Green Bay is a very Catholic town and Lombardi was Catholic. Um, so the two go hand in hand. Um, the churches in Green Bay would, would make sure that their Sunday uh, sermons were in, done in time for everybody to go watch or be at the Packer game. Um, it's, uh, it's almost primordial. Uh, Lambeau Field, um, where the Packers play, um, is in a neighborhood um, uh, surrounded by one-story houses, sort of a working-class neighborhood of Green Bay. But there's huge parking lots around it. And thousands and thousands of people gather hours before the game um, to tailgate. Um, so it's like this massive, uh, you almost feel like you're in an army camp in the 16th century in Europe somewhere because this vast uh, you know, fields of people um, uh, gathered for 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 this event, um, which of course has a slightly military feel to it. In any case, um, you know, all of the the phraseology of football is is built on on military terminology. Um, but in, but so it, but it, but it's uh, it's joyous. Um, everybody, you know, I mean, certainly there's drinking, um, but there's also just this joyous community sensibility to the Packers so that, you know, people, you know, it's the smallest town in professional sports. The team is owned by the community. There's no jerk um, billionaire owner. It's the people. And there's a sense of the people that sort of radiates through that entire game day. 
So, you know, most of the games start at one o'clock. The churches are done by by 11 or noon that day, and everybody gathers on the west side of Green Bay uh, surrounding Lambeau Field. If you're not at the game and you happen to be driving somewhere, you'll feel that like a, a, a uh, uh, you know, there's some something wrong because nobody is on the streets. It's completely empty everywhere and utterly quiet, except for the roars emanating from the stadium. Wow. All right, we've got to go to the cliche phrase of the frozen tundra of Lambeau Field. And uh, did you feel frozen tundra or the the temperature? What is the what is the environment do to you as a fan? And what could you imagine it does to the teams? Well, it's funny that you would use that phrase because in the Broadway play that was based on my book, the Lombardi character played by Dan Loria has a conniption fit over somebody saying frozen tundra because he says it's not a frozen tundra it's a tundra frozen tundra is redundant tundra means frozen right i know (laughs) but but so anyway um being cold um was you know it's not the most pleasant thing in the world but it was essential to feel that to write about it and so you know, when we when we were out at, um, at our cottage in the woods, uh, it dropped well below zero quite often. There were snowstorms. There was what they called a weather system called the Saskatchewan Screamer or the Alberta Clipper coming in from Canada into northern Wisconsin. Um, you would hear the trees creak at night. It was so cold. Um, you know, one of the only sounds. And at the game itself, um, I spent a lot of time interviewing people who were at the Ice Bowl in 1967 and their descriptions of the uh, countless layers of clothing that they would wear, um, the little fires they would start in, in, in coffee cans underneath their feet with, with candles and, and kerosene and other things, uh, all of the different ways that they would keep warm and their pride in surviving that brutality of a day. Um, But of course, I also discovered that there's a certain mythology to the Ice Bowl, and that if everyone who claimed they were there that day really was, the stadium would have had to hold about a million people. (laughs) Because I think everybody with any connection to the Packers who was alive then says they were at that game. and of course, they couldn't all be, but I found many, many who were. And and describing that that primordial sense, um, you know, uh, Frank Gifford, who covered the game on television, um, turned to his his uh, 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 announcing mate and said, "I think I'm going to take another bite from my coffee." <laughs> um, uh, the the uh, the press uh, box. Uh, fogged up, so people had to. The reporters had to scrape uh, the windows with their credit cards to even see what was going on in the field. Um, wow! The uh, the Dallas Cowboys, who were the opposing team, um, you could tell precisely how how intimidated they were because they had their hands tucked down in their pants. Um, you know, which was and whereas the the Packers, uh, Ray Nitschke, their their uh, tough middle linebacker uh, wore short sleeves. Um, Of course, he also suffered from frostbite during that game. Wow. Um, I think one of the interesting things about you going to these places as well is um, that you form friendships sometimes with uh, people. um, And then um, years later, that may... um, for various reasons, uh, you may see them again or revisit those places. And I think one of the most exciting things for us as a family is your connection to Lambeau Field now. So who did you meet uh, when you were researching that book that still has a connection um, to Lambeau, which is, I think, a, a pretty cool story? Well, this was 1996 and early 97. And the in the press box, there was an intern named Aaron Popke, um, who, you know, sort of took care of the reporters there. Um, and he, over the years, stayed with the Packers, and he's now the top assistant to the president of the Packers, Mark Murphy. And so basically, I mean, because of the book, I sort of have a lifetime pass to Lambeau Field. 
But Aaron Popke, who's a you know a very good guy and a friend of mine and of my son Andrews and the whole family, uh, takes care of us whenever we come to Green Bay. Um, there are uh, the um, the daughter. There was a uh, a book that that Vince Lombardi has his name on a title of uh, Run to Daylight, which was written in 1962. And the great author of that book actually was W.C. Hines, one of the greatest sports writers of the 20th century, who came out to Green Bay to, to do this this sort of as-told-to book with Lombardi. And um, I got to know him in his – he was in his late 80s and early 90s when I interviewed him. Uh, but I also became close with him, and he would read uh, – the raw copy of the other books I was writing until he died. But his daughter, Gail Hines, is a very good friend of mine. And there are, there are others along the way. Um, you know, I don't tend to make friends with politicians because, I, you know, as a, as a trained political reporter, I know better than to get too close to politicians. But the other books I write about regular people, I've befriended people all along the way, as has Linda and my whole family. Mm-hmm. Well, let's shift uh, books if we can, although it's hard to leave Green Bay. And um, we're actually going back in time when it... Well, in the winter, (laughs) we'll leave Green Bay now. Um, But going backwards to the the first uh, biography that you wrote, which was on Bill Clinton, uh, there's another fascinating story that looks, I think, a little bit at the mythology as well of... of, um, the idea of that certain people are associated so strongly with a place. But Bill Clinton, his campaign anyway, uh, liked to promote that he was from Hope, Arkansas. There's a certain poetic nature to that. But you discovered something else about where he really spent his time. And that city or town was Hot Springs, Arkansas. So what, what did you discover about the differences in terms of those towns and what they each contributed to shaping Bill Clinton? Well, Hope is a very small town in deep southwest Arkansas, sort of in the middle of nowhere. And it's where he was born. Um, It's where he spent his first four or five years um, living with his mother part of the time, but his grandparents more of the time when his mother was away studying nursing uh, in Shreveport. Um, And, of course, the first place I went was Hope, Um, And I learned certain things there that were invaluable. And I learned more about Bill Clinton from Hot Springs, which I'll get to in a moment. But to start with Hope, that's the first place I went. And it's so small that there's only a Motel 6, I think, on the edge of town. And I settled in there. And the second day I was there, the night desk clerk asked me, you know, what I was doing. And I said, well, I'm writing this biography of Bill Clinton. And she said, Billy Clinton, I'm his great aunt. Wow. Um, And, um, you know, about half the people in Hope said they were related to Bill Clinton in some way or another, and the other half maybe really were. (laughs) But but this great aunt um, took pity on me after the second day I was there because I'm an allergic asthmatic, and it was springtime in southwest Arkansas, and the mimosa trees were blooming, and my nose was a mess. Um, So she said, well, David, if you come over to my house tonight, I have a potion that I think will help your nose and your sinuses. So I went over to her house, and she gave me a potion. Uh, I think it actually made my situation (laughs) worse. But as we were talking, she said, you know, up in my attic, I have this box full of Billy Clinton's mamas." Uh, effects. Oh my gosh. And mama in Southern means grandma. So my heart started beating faster. And she went up to Raddick and brought down this box. And the first thing I saw was a stack of envelopes that said Georgetown University oh, on them. Wow. And Bill Clinton went to Georgetown as an undergraduate in the 1960s. And these were letters that he'd written to his mama from that period. So going there to Hope, and then the second leg of the table, or the second leg is interviewing the woman, and the third leg is getting the the archival documents, which were these letters, all came together in that one uh, trip, uh, the first of my going there to Arkansas of the many. Um, 
After Hope, I went to Hot Springs, spent much time there at the Arlington Hotel, an old place that had been a spa during Hot Springs' heyday when people would come from all over the country uh, to bathe in the hot springs there in the various hotels. Um, I actually went to get a massage from an old guy who told me that he had rubbed down um, uh, many of the mobsters from Chicago, you know, uh, uh, m- Lucky Luciano and, and Meyer Lansky and Al Capone were people that he talked about. And that really is Hot Springs. It it had this dichotomy to it of, of sort of the gambling parlors and massage parlors on one side of the street and Baptist churches on the other. And Billy Clinton walked between those two. Um, in his physically in his life and sort of metaphysically in his development as a young man. Um, And I could see that dichotomy in Clinton um, going all the way through his career up to the, you know, the point where I was writing about this biography of him. And so understanding Bill Clinton through hot springs and that duality of his nature um, was essential when I went there to understand. Well, that, those are amazing stories, Dad. And what is it like when you were in the um, the great aunt's house and she brought out that box? How do you contain your like? <laughs> do you show that this is this is like um, uh, gold, or or do you share that this is amazing? I mean, what is the what does it feel like to to stumble in a way upon this? type of material? Um, I would say that my heart definitely starts beating faster, um, but I try to keep my composure. And, um, you know, the, the key to that sort of reporting is to make the subjects that you're dealing with not feel like you're using mm-hmm. them. And so, you know, it's very important for me to, to establish connections with people in an honest way. So, you know, I wasn't rushing through that evening to try to get out of there to get the documents. You know, I took her potion. I talked to her about the mimosa trees and my allergies and about a a lot about hope and the various people of that town. Um, Even as my heart was beating faster that, boy, I want to get those letters. um, I also realized that it was important for me to maintain a relationship with the great aunt and with the other people I would deal with in hope and do it in an honest way. Um, It's very important to me to establish relationships with people where they know exactly where I'm coming from, what I'm interested in, and that although I want to get to the truth and get every document I can, um, I want to do it in the right way. Well, that's a perfect segue then uh, for the next place that you went. Um, well, not not chronologically in your in your writing, but for our discussion, uh, which is Vietnam for your book. Um, uh, they marched into sunlight, and that book I'm sure some listeners have read, um, and it really looks at um, 1967 and the um, some battles in Vietnam, but also the protests at the University of Wisconsin um, against the war. Uh, But what I -hmm. think is so interesting is when you went to Vietnam, uh, you did something that I don't think you've done on any other of your trips to research, which was that you brought with you some of the figures uh, who you ended up including in the book. Um, I mean, that was not a coincidence, but mm-hmm. what no. what was the thought process as you approached that trip to Vietnam, and how did you come to the decision to go about that trip in a way that was very different from your previous research trips? Well, let me back up just a bit to introduce the people that I brought with me. Um, there were two uh, subjects, figures in the book who came with me. One was Clark Welch, who had been a uh, company commander in the battle that I write about, the Battle of Ang Tan, 44 miles northwest of Saigon, in which his uh, battalion was essentially decimated. The other person I brought with me was Consuelo Allen, who was the daughter of the battalion commander who was killed in the battle. Um, 
Finding Clark Welch was one of the most important and difficult parts of this, uh, my research for the book. He had, after the battle, survived it, fought heroically, but so many of his soldiers were killed that he spent really decades almost in hiding, fearing that that some loved one of one of the the killed soldiers would say, you know, you're responsible for the death of my son or brother or husband, um, when in fact that wasn't the case at all, as we'll get to. Um, so he was reluctant to talk to me. And it really took a year of work talking to so many of the other soldiers who survived the battle to finally convince him that he should talk with me. Um, we agreed to meet at a, a lobby of a hotel in Denver. He at the time lived um, in the mountains uh, above uh, Colorado Springs. Um, I came to the to the hotel early, and uh, it turns out that he had been there even before I got there. It spent about an hour scouting me out to decide whether he wanted hmm. to talk to me. Um, and, uh, you know, he was an old Green Beret, so he, he knew how to do that without me noticing. And finally, we sat down and started talking. And he said, David, I will talk to you if you promise to be good to my boys. Now, what did that mean? Um, as I thought about it, it meant that it would require me to probably be duplicitous in one way or another. If I promised to be good to his boys, meaning not write about anything that happened during the battle that was of any controversy, and discovered that there were some parts of the of the behavior of his boys that was not right, if I made that promise, I'd be uh, denying the truth. If I promised to be good to his boys and wrote the truth that was not what he wanted, then I'd be uh, lying to him. So I said, I can't make that promise one way or another. I can only promise that I'll try to find the truth. And he got up from the table and said, that's not good enough. You have to promise to be good to my boys. I went through the whole argument again. And the second time he heard it and understand what I was saying, that I would search for the truth wherever it took me. There'd be no surprises. I'd tell him exactly what was going on. And then he decided to sit down and talk with me. And we developed a friendship from that that led to him giving me a few, uh, several dozen letters that he'd written home to his wife, Lacey, during the that period of the battle before and after, you know, the second part of, of my four legs to get the documents um, along with the interview with him and then to go there. Now, as I interviewed him, he'd say, you know, I don't know uh, Terry Allen, who was the battalion commander's daughters. I imagine that they're mad at me um, because Clark Welch had tried to talk Terry Allen out of going into the battle that day. There was much tension between them, and uh, over the over you know his discussions of the battle after that. And so I said, well, I've talked to Consuelo Allen, the oldest of the daughters. I don't think she holds any, you know, she's, of course, always been heartbroken by the, the death of her dad, but I don't think she blames any other soldiers for it. And certainly not you who tried to talk him out of going into the what turned out to be an ambush that day. So I brought them together. And eventually, I brought them both to Vietnam with me, which was an incredible experience. Um, and they bonded um, during that that uh, the time in Vietnam in a way that that I you know I wasn't planning on, but made made me feel better about the whole story that I could write the truth. Each of them understanding that the truth would would not be um, exactly the way they would uh, dream it up to be for either their father or for Clark. Um, but that I was interested in getting to what really happened. And um, so in Vietnam, I wanted to find the leaders of the Viet Cong 1st Regiment that fought on the other side of the battle. And I came, brought with me the names that I had accumulated from various sources um, uh, government documents of who might have been leading that other side. 
and I gave them to my quote-unquote handler, a, a, a government official, Madam Ha. Um, and a couple of days later, as we were in uh, Ho Chi Minh City, Saigon, she called me and said, I found your guy. His name is Vo Minh Triet. He lives in uh, Ward 13 in Ho Chi Minh City, in charge of population control there. And if you come to our offices tomorrow, um, you and Clark can meet him. And so we did. And we sat across the table from one another. Um, and I interviewed uh, Vo Minh Triet for several hours. Uh, I was so nervous that he wouldn't remember the battle itself because battles are chaos and the different sides have different memories and and he had fought in many other battles. Uh, Finally, Clark Welch was getting kind of uh, frustrated with me to get to the point. So I took out this map of the battle area and Vomin Triet rose from his seat and pointed precisely at the spot where the battle took place and said, we weren't supposed to be there. Let me tell you how it happened. And it turned out that his regiment was starving. They'd been eating only stinkweed for days. They had no food. And they knew that there was a compound nearby that should have stores of rice, which had not yet come in. So they were waiting for the rice when they heard this heavy American battalion clanging around in the woods and set up this horrible ambush. Um, They had a 1,000 men, Clark Welch's and and Terry Allen's uh, battalion, marched into an ambush of, they had only 160 men. And 60 of those were killed and 60 wounded. Um, so after Clark and I talked to Vomin Tread, I asked him if he would come along the next day to the battle site. And we all uh, loaded into this van the next morning. It was Clark Welch. It was Consuelo Allen, whose father had been killed in that battle. Vo Minh Tret, the uh, Viet Cong company commander, my wife and a few other people would come along with us. And I have to tell you that walking that battlefield, um, watching Vo Minh Tret and Clark Welch um, talking to each other, even though they didn't know each other's language, these two old soldiers who had tried to kill each other decades earlier, now communing um, uh, as, as two uh, old soldiers, uh, Consuelo Allen walking toward the site where her father had been killed. I had a uh, all of the uh, documents that showed where everything took place. Clark Welch had a little uh, GPS uh, medallion around his neck. And finally, he said, David, if we go over 50 yards this direction, um, that's where the center of the battle was, where Commander Terry Allen was killed. And we walked into this uh, rubber plantation field, and it was a sunny, cool January day. There were leaves underfoot. The sun was dappling down through the trees. And we got to that spot, and there was an anthill. And in my reporting, I had learned that Terry Allen died hiding behind an anthill. And in Vietnam, these anthills can be four to six feet high. Um, And there was one about that height there. And of course, it was a different anthill, but it was the same anthill. And that moment of being there, of going there, of being there with um, Clark Welch, who was the hero of the battle and tried to talk the commander out of it, with the daughter of Terry Allen, whose dad was killed there, um, who remembered that a month before her father was killed, he came home on leave, and she hid under a table trying to, hoping that if he couldn't find her, she, he wouldn't go back to Vietnam and get killed. And now he was here in that spot. And there was Vo Minh Tret, who had been the commander on the other side. And everything, history and time compressed into that powerful moment that I could only have felt by having those people with me and being on that spot. That is, um, that's a career right there. You could stop and do nothing more in your life, dad, and you would have changed lives. You know what I mean? Like that must, I know that's not why you do your books, but, um, 
the threads that you wove together there that, are, are quite amazing. I would say that of all the books I've written, um, they marched into sunlight did change the most lives. Um, Clark Welch and all of the soldiers who survived the battle, who knew what had really ha happened and knew that the American government lied about the battle and claimed it was a victory on their side and made up a body count and said it wasn't an ambush because at the time the battle took place, uh, the top general in Vietnam, William Westmoreland, and the president, Lyndon Johnson, were arguing for more men and saying that if they just fought battles of attrition against the Viet Cong, they would win the war. And that was a lie. And the battle itself was a lie. And the soldiers who endured it, whether decades later they would support the Vietnam War in retrospect or oppose it, it didn't matter. They all knew that the truth of their battle had had been, what happened in that battle had been fabricated by the American government. And they appreciated that I brought them together and told the truth of what happened. And another thread to this, I think, is sometimes when I read your books, I feel like, well, of course, this this narrative existed and you are writing about it. But in so many ways, you as the author have to find the arc and find the um, the story and make it, um, in a sense, uh, it's actually disconnected until you piece it together. And I think it's an interesting um, part of the story that, that you were researching to find a battle, but it's not a well-told story. How did, how did you find this battle? What drew you to this date in October? What else was um, part of your thought process that you, you found this? You're absolutely right. This book was, it's nonfiction, but the structure is my creation. Unlike a biography, which already has its own skeleton to it. Um, so how this happened was, as I was writing my biographies of Bill Clinton and Vince Lombardi, both of them had very important aspects of their lives and careers developed during the 1960s. With Bill Clinton, he was he's a post-war baby boomer like myself, and the 60s saw the Vietnam War um, and uh, civil rights as sort of defining uh, themes of that generation. Vince Lombardi, on the other hand, was winning and prevailing up in tiny Green Bay during the 1960s as the culture was clanging and changing around him. But as I was writing each of those books, I became obsessed with the 1960s because it is the defining decade of, of, my, of myself. And so I thought, well, I'm just going to write a book about that. I decided I would build it around Vietnam. And I knew that I was a freshman at the University of Wisconsin in the fall of 1967 when the first major protest against the war on a university campus devolved into what was essentially a police riot, where the police came into the Commerce Building where students were holding a uh, civil disobedience sit-down uh, in protest of the Dow Chemical Company, the makers of Napalm and Agent Orange, who were recruiting on the campus. The police came in and started beating heads. I was a freshman. I was on the edge of the crowd outside the building watching it as the police came in and as, as the students, protesters came out with their bloody heads. And I thought about that as a part of what I wanted to write about. Um, because 1967 was so interesting to me in that everything was up in the air. It was right after the summer of love in San Francisco. It was before the Tet Offensive of January uh, 1968 when the, everybody started to turn against the war in a stronger way. Um, culture and politics seemed to be changing week by week. So I wanted to capture that moment. Then I thought, well, there's been a lot of great literature already, uh, nonfiction, about the war in Vietnam, not as much about the anti-war movement. And I hadn't seen a book that put those two very different worlds together into one interwoven story. So taking the October 17th protest on the University of Wisconsin campus, I went to the library at the Washington Post and said, what was going on in Vietnam that day? 
and I found very small stories about this battle um, in Vietnam, which was only even a story because two famous people had been killed in the battle, one being Terry Allen, the commander, whose father, terrible Terry Allen, was a, a famous World War II general. And the other one was uh, Major Donald Hollander, who'd been an All-American football player at West Point. Now, there was something eerie about Hollander because he had been recruited to West Point by none other than Vince Lombardi, who was an assistant coach for Army um, during that period of the early 1950s. And I literally had in my documents that I'd accumulated for the Lombardi book a prayer, uh, a little uh, sort of uh, prayer uh, paper that the Lombardi had kept of Lombardi, of, of Donald Hollander's a funeral mass. Oh, um, wow. And so, you know, there was a this odd little connection. But in any case, um, I saw immediately that that battle and that protest going on in the same two days, both being dealt with in various ways by President Johnson and the, the government in Washington, the war and the anti-war, um, was a way for me to tell a larger story. So it sounds like that that battle would have been um, just a footnote in history, never looked at again. And uh, Consuelo and Clark could have gone their lives without uh, knowing what you ended up telling in that book. Um, a footnote is right, Sarah. Um, mm -hmm. At that point in 1967, 12,000 American soldiers had already died in the war countless hundreds of thousands of Vietnamese on both sides on the way towards 57,000 American soldiers and perhaps as many as a million Vietnamese. Um, the battles in that, in that war were of a different nature than the ones later in the first and second Iraq wars, Afghanistan. You know, if 10 or 12 American soldiers were killed in either of those uh, wars, it was a big story. But in Vietnam, here you had 60 men killed, and it was barely mentioned um, because of the, the, you know, the magnitude of that war. Of course, World War II and the Civil War, World War One, were even much greater than that. But, but Vietnam of the modern wars um, was the most uh, deadly. Well, moving uh, forward a, a little bit, uh, and I think it's an interesting um, progression because the, uh, the next figure I want to talk about is Barack Obama, who slides in just after the baby boomers, technically, can we say, mm -hmm. uh, generationally? 61 is sort of right on the cusp right. of the end of the baby boom and whatever came after that. Right. And this... Um, this book you wrote on Barack Obama uh, is sweeping, and some call it a generational biography, and I, I like that term. Can, let's just go through the places you went uh, in researching uh, Obama. Well, you know, after um, persuading Linda to move to Green Bay for the winter with me, mm -hmm. um, it was nice to be able to make that up to her with many of the other trips we've taken together for our books. And so the first place that she went with me on this book was Hawaii, <laughs> where Barack Obama was indeed born, not in Kenya. <laughs> okay. Um, and it was by going there that I could establish that very early in the process, um, before Donald Trump and various other people started claiming the, the whole birther notion. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, he lived in Hawaii, uh, on and off through high school. Um, and I learned a lot about sort of the essence of Barama, of Obama through that experience of going to Hawaii, a place that is um, a polyglot, multicultural. Um, so many uh, people there of Japanese and Samoan and Polynesian uh, and mixed uh, hapas, as they're called, of mixed race um, which was Obama, who was uh, African and uh, American uh, Anglo. Uh, his parents met at the University of Hawaii. His father was an exchange student from from Kenya. Uh, his mother mother was a precocious 
um, young woman who had moved to Hawaii with her parents when her father was sort of footloose and restless, kept moving from from Kansas to Oklahoma to Texas to Seattle and further west on to, to Hawaii. Um, Obama's parents really barely lived together. Um, and uh, Barack Obama Sr. left shortly after uh, Barry was born. Um, so Hawaii was a central part of it, understanding um, kind of the the uh, characteristics of that President Obama would display in the White House, mm-hmm. a certain uh, suave, cool. In Hawaii, there's a saying, cool head, main thing. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of the way Obama behaved, always keeping his cool no matter what was going on around him. Also, a certain reserve uh, that was part of that. Um, a universality because of the way that Hawaii was such a, a multicultural place. Um, Barack Obama had this universal sensibility that uh, you can see being formed in Hawaii. Um, his name actually was not that uncommon in, in Hawaii. You know, you think Barack Obama is this exotic name. Obama is actually also a Japanese name. Mm. Um, and there were, so a lot of people in Hawaii thought he was part Japanese. Um, one of his best friends on the basketball team was named Tom Topolinski. <laughs> Sounds Polish. Uh, he was Chinese. Uh, sort of this incredible mix uh, in Hawaii that helped uh, define Barack Obama. And then, of course, um, I also went to Indonesia and to Kenya. Indonesia is where his mother moved after she had married a second time to an Indonesian named Lolo Sotoro. And he was called back to Indonesia in the sort of violence of, of the mid-1960s. Uh, Indonesia. And little Barry and his mother and Lolo uh, lived in Jakarta. And I went to uh, Jakarta um, to do some research. And it was really by going to the first neighborhood where they lived uh, in Mentang Dalam on the outskirts of Jakarta and seeing the narrow streets and the exotic sounds and smells of that place, and understanding that that little Barry went to a Catholic school there uh, first, and then a public school. He did not go to the um, to the international school where most of the um, expatriates uh, went. Their kids went. Uh, he had to sink or swim in this place. He learned the language Bahasa Indonesia. Um, he made friends with the with the kids in the neighborhood, and it was really standing outside of the small stucco white house where he lived when he was five and six years old, and thinking about little Barry there, um, dealing with with life in Indonesia in a very real and, and raw way, and thinking about the the uh, course that took him from that place to the White House on Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington, D.C., that really sort of infused everything I wrote about the remarkable journey of his life. Um, It's interesting because uh, I think people are always looking from the outside in trying to extract a formula for leadership or a formula for success. And as you immersed yourself in his world, what an unpredictable a series of things are irreplicable, I might say, uh, actually, in some ways. And I see that pattern in Clinton also. Does that ever strike you? Yes. Um, You know, Clinton, the one difference was that you could see in Billy Clinton from a very early age, a burning ambition um, and an ambition to be a politician which is not in and of itself, you know, it tends to be a a derogatory term to say you're an ambitious politician. Is it derogatory to say um, you want to be a great pianist or artist or writer or athlete? No, but for politicians, somehow that's considered to be dirty that you want to prevail and, and, and excel in that arena. Well, Bill Clinton always wanted to. 
Barack Obama, you didn't see that at all um, until much later in his uh, you know, post-adolescence, until he got to college, you start to see a little bit of that emerge. So that's the difference between them. But in terms of the unlikely parts of their lives, the extraordinary odds against either of them making it um, to where they got um, and sort of the the role of talent, skill, chance, luck, um, happenstance, um, and um, then in the end, the luck being the residue of design, as Branch Ricking once said, um, to get where they wanted to go. All of that is, I mean, I'm I'm struck by um, by that every time I write a book. You know the sort of all of the different things that have to happen for for the end result. You've told a lot of stories about some of the unexpected uh, uh, finds that you've had that sort of compound your instincts um, of going there. But what about, have you ever had an experience where you've gone there and not found what you were hoping to find or where you hit a roadblock? And, and how did you respond to that? Well, there are always roadblocks and frustrations. And the key to research is to just keep going. And um, one of my writing heroes or mentors is Robert Caro, the great biographer of Lyndon Johnson and Robert Moses. And Caro has a saying, turn every page. And so I can't tell you how many times I've had to pound that into my head and not give up. Um, and turn every page can be literal in terms of, you know, sitting in an archive somewhere from 10 in the morning until 5 at night. Your eyes are glazing over, you're hungry, you're bored. Um, you know, 10 out of 15 pages are worthless to you um, or more than that. And I remember vividly um, being at the Georgia Historical Society, um, uh, looking for documents on one of the figures in a great Amer a good American family, um, the chairman of the House on American Activities Committee, John Stevens Wood. And I spent all day reading document after document that wasn't getting me exactly what I was looking for. And I was just about to leave, and I heard Carol's voice, and I kept going and literally found the revelation of Wood's connection to a horrible lynching in the last document I looked at, you know. And so, you know, that's sort of a literal turn every page, but the same thing is true with interviews I mean, some interviews are worthless. People either have bad memories or they're unreliable narrators. And so you have to just keep finding more and more people until you get to the ones that you know you can trust and who have the sorts of detailed memories that um, make a story. Um, so there are frustrations, and that's part of the research process is working your way through that tedium to get to the gold. I want to uh, circle now, in a sense, to perhaps your most personal book, uh, which is your latest one, um, A Good American Family, uh, and the central character being your own father. And going there, uh, this might involve a couple of legs because it's also finding a primary document. Um, can you talk about finding the letter from your father, the statement that he wrote that was never uh, read um, in the room of judgment for for your dad? Yes. My father um, in 1952 was called before the House Un-American Activities Committee, accused of being un-American and fired from his job as a newspaper man in Detroit and basically spent the next five years with his young family, including me, age two to seven, bouncing around America until he found his legs again and the blacklist was over. Um, and it was a story that I, 
was probably in me my whole life, but it wasn't until my mid-60s that I, when my parents were gone, that I really sort of confronted it and said, I have to do this story. And part of the reason, Sarah, that I came to it was from my other biographies. Uh, you know, I, with all of the other biographies, I started essentially with Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, Vince Lombardi, Roberto Clemente as strangers. And by the time I was done, I knew more about their families than they did. And of course, most people don't have a biographer going back to find out what really happened. They hear mythological stories from their parents and siblings and aunts and uncles and grandparents, and that's what they think is the story. Well, I knew that my family had not quite a secret, but a part of the story that had not really been explored, and that was my father's uh, time in the crucible of the Red Scare. So I finally decided to do it, and going there for the first instance also meant getting the documents, which was to go to the National Archives in Washington, D.C., where all of the House Un-American Activities Committee documents were, and they had been unsealed entirely. And there was a box that was just on the hearings in Detroit in February and March of 1952. Now, I already knew, um, I already had read the transcript of the interrogation of my father by the committee chairman and the committee council because congressional hearings are public record, and the transcripts are always printed by the government printing office. So I'd had that for a few years before I'd been I'd read it and knew, understood that. And in that transcript, there's a point where my father says, I'd like to read a statement about what I believe it means to be an American. And he was denied that privilege. Um, unless he had confessed to his sins and named names, they weren't going to let him read a statement. So here I am at the National Archives in Washington, D.C. in May of 2015 and looking through the box on the Detroit hearings and seeing a folder that said Elliot Marinus and opening the folder. And the first thing in it is that statement, statement of Elliot Marinus that he wrote the night before he was to testify in 1952. And... Of course, it was, it, it overwhelmed me for a lot of reasons. It's a very powerful three-page statement. But what struck me first was not the words, but the physicality of it on the page. My dad, Elliot Marinus, was a, you know, as we've talked about, a classic newspaper man. He was a hunt and peck typist, really a pretty sloppy typist. Um, and he was constantly Xing words out and Re, retyping them and pounding away on an upright old typewriter. And in those typewriters, the keys would often stick. And sometimes the, the letters would jump up a half a space. And the S in statement had jumped up a half a space. And it was really when I saw that, what I call the imperfect S, that for the first time in my life, really, I was able to feel some of what my father must have been feeling as he was in that crucible writing out that statement. You know, it had been something that we hadn't really talked about. Um, my father had survived and moved on so successfully in his life. And I never really allowed myself to think about what it must have been like for him in that moment until I saw that statement. And really that understanding infused everything that I wrote about in this book. Well, one thing that strikes me, Dad, in everything that you've described about going to these places is that um, your writing in so many ways is um, a process of stepping into the world of these people and you're empathetic, you're an empathetic soul, but also you really feel, in a sense, you feel the wind, you feel the grass beneath you. You, It's not just uncovering things, but in a sense, um, uh, uh, uncovering what it felt like to be these people that you're writing about. Um, I think that's, that's a subtle part of your writing that 
that isn't always articulated when people ask or learn how to write, to use your whole self like that. It's very interesting. Well, it's, um, it's just my, it's, it's who I am. Um, so part of that is a reflection of my character and personality that I'm trying to understand people through their perspectives. Uh, as a, as a, uh, human being and as a writer, of course, I have my own sensibility, my own biases and prejudices. Um, but I don't really believe in preaching to the choir, at least not, uh, you know, in any didactic way. I do search for the truth and try to present that, um, but in a way that's accessible to anyone uh, as part of the human experience. And they can draw their own conclusions um, from the truths that I try to find in the world that I recreate. Um, but I'm not really interested in filtering everything through a particular ideology, even though I have my own, but trying to find a larger, open, accessible, a universal uh, perspective that allows people to, to enter into my stories. You've just listened to an episode of the David Marinus Ink in Our Blood podcast. We hope you'll subscribe to the Ink in Our Blood podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or whichever podcast service you prefer. If you loved it, we'd love it if you left a rating or review. Ink in Our Blood is produced by Metamorphosis.agency with creative direction by Monika Ryan and strategy and technical production by Jeremy Ryan. Music is by the legendary Ben Sidron. I'm your host, Sarah Marinus Vandershaft. Thank you for listening. I made my way to the back nine. They call me the Iron Man. Watching out for the sand traps. Formulating my plan. Out on the back.